0: Hey everybody, welcome to TCP Talks with Jonathan Baker and Justin Brodley from The Cloud Pod. In this series we're bringing you interviews with the best and brightest leaders and heroes from the tech and cloud industry. My, SRE, AIOps, and Observer what? Let's untangle this mess with Chris Riley, tech advocate from Splunk.
1: Well, thanks for coming on today, Chris. How's it going in this uh, interesting time we're in? Oh, man, it is. Uh, You know, I think every day has a a new
2: vibe and new feeling, at least for me. (laughs) So it's a a roller coaster. Um, But yeah, I mean, uh, highly productive, I'd say, Um, doing a lot of things. Um, but the outcomes and, and how we operate is is completely different.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. The uh rush to work from home has caught some companies a little bit uh, surprise and kind of the challenges that are in, it with the, but, you know, now we've been at it for a few weeks, I'm glad to see people are starting to figure it out and start work through the the issues, get into the groove. You know, my, uh, your kids are working from home, you know, working from home as well, but schooling from home. Uh, so it's all been really interesting. But maybe uh, for those who aren't as familiar with you, Chris, maybe you could uh, introduce yourself a little bit. Sure.
2: Um, so Chris Riley, obviously, we got that part down. Uh, I am DevOps advocate uh, for Splunk. Um, what does that mean? Uh, it means that externally, uh, I engage with the practitioner community, very focused on on practitioners, people who who are in the weeds using the technology day in day out. Uh, and then internally, I work with our teams to. Um, make sure that we we understand um, what's going on in the market and what is going on with the practitioners. Um, I'm uniquely positioned uh, in a department inside of Splunk called Research and Advisory. And basically we're kind of a strategic function, um, bolt-on sidecar uh, to the um, DevOps and IT markets um, focus areas.
1: Interesting. So, you know, Splunk's been doing a lot of acquisitions. They picked up VictorOps as well as SignalFX. How does that kind of all play into this DevOps world and where Splunk sees themselves as playing in DevOps space?
2: You know, the recent acquisitions have fallen into that DevOps category pretty squarely, Um, especially SignalFX for observability around microservices, uh, Kubernetes and and the complexity of modern application architectures. Um, before that, VictorOps. VictorOps really spreads, you know, both from traditional IT, um, if that's an appropriate term. <laughs> um, I, I should just say IT and application development. Um, so those two additions to the portfolio, um, they they make perfect sense and clearly um, add more value, especially to the world of, you know, modern applications, modern release velocity. Splunk has always had um, apps for monitoring delivery chains. And uh, the cool part about that is is the Splunk core platform really helps organizations go closer and closer to what I call value stream. Um, Which is measuring your pipeline's impact over a long period of time, in addition to monitoring of infrastructure and metrics.
1: Maybe you can expand a little bit on the signal effects piece of it. You know, Splunk has always kind of been the one stop shop for metrics and logging. How does you see signal effects start to complement some of those Splunk capabilities? I'd be remiss in not kind of
2: going into a definition of observability here. Um, And I think anybody who's lived, Setting up Kubernetes and building microservices already kind of gets this uh, intuitively. But as we move from stateful, monolithic type applications, the interaction between the different layers of the application and services become increasingly more complex. And typical monitoring approaches are really good for those stateful environments and surfacing Uh, relevant data for the infrastructure there. But when you're dealing with challenges where the problem that occurs is not necessarily the thing that throws the alert, um, and you have to trace all the way through the layers of a microservices application, things get very complex very quickly. And I think what we've seen in the evolution of microservices is that Development teams have been very good at building these architectures to move faster, but they haven't done what's required to manage and support those uh, applications in production. And that's where this new class of uh, application performance monitoring really comes in. And that's where Signal Um, plays very well, and and really where you start looking at observability, which is kind of that next layer on top of monitoring, which is going one step further than um, digging into events, but correlating events across your entire application.
1: It's interesting you bring up observability, and it's been a topic... um... It's coming up a lot in the industry, and kind of the change from being a monitoring focused and really logging focused to now trying to bring those together. Where do you think uh, a company starting down this observability path would really start this journey?
2: Yeah, we don't make it easy in the industry, do we? When we start coming up with new terms,
1: at least this one we're not we're not calling a cultural movement like the DevOps one. We're actually calling we're calling this one a thing. <laughs>
2: I'm still I'm still guilty of that. Although observability does kind of have this concept of principles around building applications to be observable. You know, I I look at it and this is the same thing as the way I looked at DevOps where, you know, admittedly I was a I was a naysayer of DevOps in the early 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 days about 6 years ago. Um and I generally do that with any new term. I just uh, by default say no that's wrong and then eventually I adopt it as one of my own. I think naturally as you start looking at serverless um, hybrid applications that go from serverless to cloud, uh, and the complexities around microservices—you you naturally run into this wall where supporting these applications and triaging and troubleshooting production issues become annoyingly complex. Um, Uber has you know some great videos out there on. The sheer number of services they have, the problems they have that each service has its own stack, each service has its own life cycle. Um, they have challenges around the relationship between services, and you start to get into this discussion about contracts and and all of these things. You discover very quickly that you know you can't really take a point in time approach when building visibility and supporting these applications, and so it requires something unique, and what is that? Well, it's all the traditional stuff, you know, logs, metrics, but now you start to have to look at traces and spans. Traces uh, being the connection between all your services and the relationship and how a transaction flows through that, and then spans being the actual time span of the transaction within each of the services kind of as a waterfall. And these two new you know, elements um, that you would build dashboards around and have visibility on is really what comprises the, the whole idea of observability in addition to all the logic that you build on top of that to make sure that SREs and those people on call get the right information to uh, – deal with issues versus hunting. Um back in the day when it was purely event management, you were hunting. Now we don't have the luxury to hunt. Um, we all have more responsibilities. We need technology to surface that information for us. And so I think that looking at observability is just kind of a natural aspect of um the complexity of modern applications, even if you don't call it that. Just like If you're building applications at a higher quality and a greater velocity, that's DevOps. You don't need to call it DevOps, but it's DevOps. That's the term the industry uses.
0: I think a lot of monitoring solutions or logging solutions have been born because of the separation of of engineering and operations. So do you think engineering teams have, have a role to play in observability?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that and that's where we get to the principal aspects of it in the in the most high performing teams I've seen, and especially those teams that have the SRE role, which site reliability engineer, they spend a lot of time stewarding best practices across the organization. And the observability tools are a big part of that communication and the ability to communicate. And engineering teams are are certainly involved I um, one of the things that is kind of interesting when you look at most DevOps conversations out there is that DevOps conversations still tend to stop at release, so it's kind of like you talk about everything up to release, and the whole idea about DevOps is that feedback loop like what do you what do you do once something breaks like what, what do you learn from the troubles that you face in production? Without that feedback loop, like are you really iterating on your environment? Are you really improving your delivery chain over time? And so the only way to make that successful is not to just give access um, to developers and the engineers, but allowing them to be active participants in what they learn from you know production issues and the telemetry that comes out of these monitoring and observability tools. Awesome.
1: What are you? So, I mean, we have observability, we have monitoring, we have logging. Um, now we have AI ops. What, what? What is AI ops? And for our listeners, how do we think about that differently than we think about you know discrepancy monitoring or or deviation monitoring we've had in the past? Oh, that's
2: interesting. I um I hadn't heard the two correlated together, um, but I, I I I get the connection. Um, one of the things that I'm big on. Similar to that is operational drift these days because I think that that's still a huge huge problem. So AI ops, uh, like all of these terms, the benefit of the terms is for us to have a conversation about specific tooling and processes. And I think that it doesn't matter what the term is if you can look at it from the problem perspective and say that you know this is a challenge that deserves um specific lingo and um focus to have a term around it then it then it makes sense now ai ops is now uh, is become more or less an accepted industry term and i've heard a lot of very definitions from devops for ai applications to you know kind of no ops, which is fully autonomous operations, and it's neither of those. And ultimately what it is, is as we make more complex environments, we expect more from our engineering teams. We expect more from everybody uh, in the delivery chain. People are more and more accountable for the applications that they build. You can't just put all of this new workload on people and not reduce the effort from the human. And that's really what it comes down to is, is taking those tasks that are repeatable or events, issues that happen frequently and addressing them intelligently and automatically so that the human investment is truly spent on absolutely critical elements of the system that require that human um, element. And those that don't, are are handled automatically, so that's the whole idea around the umbrella of AI ops, and it comes in a lot of forms. Once you really start talking about AI ops, and my preference would be to always talk about the use case first. Um, so some of the use cases are, you know, um, automatic running of runbooks, for example. Um, disk full, you clear out a disk things of that sort, restarting services, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that's one element. Another element in the world of incident response is um, correlating similar incidents to your current incident. So you have some historical data on how similar incidents to the current one have been resolved. Um, So hopefully to triage and get to resolution faster, but also recommend people to bring into the firefight. Um, based on their expertise and incidents they've responded to in the past, so these are various areas where it it starts to come together. I think we've been talking about AI. We talk about AI in pretty much every space constantly. <laughs> and I mean it's kind of just it's it's there. But specifically when we talk about AI ops, you know this this is what we're discussing is is making the human element um, more streamlined.
0: I guess as systems get more complex, and we talk about cloud computing with thousands of nodes and, and hundreds of metrics, the, just the sheer volume of data it just becomes too much for, for people to, to be able to comprehend and correlate themselves. So while, while you could previously have had a dashboard that was somewhat meaningful, we reach a point where we do need a machine to supplement uh, understanding or removing noise or correlating things sort of beyond the capacity of, um, of a person in their usual workday.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when you look back and even in movies and so forth, and my my favorite show right now, again, I was skeptical, but season three of Westworld, you know, the the AI generally kind of becomes part of the individual. It's supporting the individual. It's not replacing. It's it's when people start talking about AI replacing operations, people and replacing developers. That's not something I see.
1: It sort of reminds me a little bit about uh, no ops and how we're going to replace all the operations people with developers and vice versa. Yeah, that's <laughs> so. one of my favorites. The easiest argument to no
2: ops is somebody's operating somewhere. Like if they, if it's truly no ops, then it's no development also. <laughs> there's no, there. it's no human, um, which is not a thing today.
1: It's interesting, uh, you know, there's been a lot of different movements that have kind of happened, you know, tied to DevOps, tied to SRE. Uh, you know things like you build it, you run it. Uh, you know different concepts like that. Yeah. What What's your take on that? As a developer advocate, kind of working in this DevOps space, you know you have a long history in working in DevOps. How do you kind of see the more successful companies breaking that down versus the ones that are struggling with this adoption curve? I think that the first
2: kind of misnomer out there is that you're anybody is going to be Google or Netflix or, or Twitter. I mean, maybe you will. Maybe your application will be. But in general, General, you know, most of the applications out there don't have the infrastructure, the transaction volume that a Google or a Facebook or a Netflix have. Um, It's useful to learn from these companies, but it's not tremendously useful to just try to emulate them. Um, SRE, for example, site reliability engineer is a concept mm-hmm. delivered by Google, where you know, they also push the red me- metrics heavily. And that's one place where I've seen people go, oh, you know, we we just our metrics will be the same as Google's metrics. And they fall short because they find out that in their application, red doesn't give them the relevant insights that they need. Um, to manage the support that their customers. So I always think it's good to learn from these companies. I, I think it's a mistake to try to necessarily copy them. I am big on the SRE function for the reason I said previously, which is DevOps has largely ignored operations. And SRE is basically that, that closes that loop. And we we are fortunate uh, inside of Splunk to have an awesome SRE team, and I've learned a lot from them. And a huge element of what they do is, again, is its stewardship um, in the large enterprises, especially, you know, investing in things like dojos uh, and intentionally completing the life cycle of applications from the point that, you know, from plan to CI/CD to deployment but then when things break back into plan you know what worked what didn't work and how can we prevent that in the future um and that and that function really brings that together so i would encourage organizations to think about that not necessarily from the perspective of hiring an SRE but think about being very deliberate about completing the life cycle because every time we think about delivery chains we tend to think of it in this very linear fashion and that in my opinion is not truly devops we have to we have to close the loop and that is also where you start to get into the next area where i think companies are challenged, which is they go fast without building the guardrails for going fast. So they get very good at automating and deploying their applications without building the framework to do that over a long period of time. And that's where I talk about treating your pipeline as an application. So if you think about your company's pipeline and all elements of it, orchestration, your backlog, your release automation, all of your testing, um, all of the observability stuff on the production side, the support incident response, that is kind of a product that you're delivering to your developers. And you should be able to iterate on that as if it was a product. Uh, and if organizations treat it that way, then they have a different mindset um, where they don't engineer themselves into a corner. My biggest fear is that somebody's going to come to me and say, you know, DevOps is waterfall of the, you know, 2010. Um, because it's not, it shouldn't be. It should be able to adapt with the environment.
1: I'm hoping that Scrum Fall becomes the waterfall <laughs> of 2010 because <laughs> I'm, I'm really tired of a lot of companies doing a really bad job uh, trying to do Agile.
2: Oh, yeah. I think everybody wants a playbook. They want a checklist that they can follow, but they neglect the, the other elements of this where it's, you know, it's not just, it's not just a, you do it and you're done. Like, this is a journey that you're going to follow for a long period of time.
1: Well, I, I think the problem that they run into is they want predictability. And because they want predictability, they want a roadmap. And because to do a roadmap you have to be waterfall because that's the way you figure out anything beyond a short window of time, which is typically six to eight weeks, you can do in Scrum pretty well without taking in feedback and considering those things. But uh, it is really a challenge, and you know the comp- you know, companies who've said, "Look, a roadmap isn't it's important. We're going to focus on agile and taking the feedback more regularly and and turning those cycles very quickly." I think are being very successful, but you know, legacy enterprise companies that are trying to make that transition, that's hard. It's hard for them to get there. Yeah,
2: it is hard, and I acknowledge that too. And I also acknowledge that not all applications need to be turned into microservices and you know that's where i talk a lot about devops having two elements one is the principles and then the practices and everybody should have the principles in my opinion but not all applications need to be suddenly turned into serverless or microservice based applications like sometimes their value is best exactly where they are but Chris, that's what Google's doing. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, but Google.
1: <laughs> and, uh, you know, but then, you know, it, it's funny to me how how many startups kind of go down that path, right? They they say everyone wants microservices. So because they want microservices, they need containers. And containers leads them to Kubernetes. And now they're building a centralized Kubernetes cluster that's massive, trying to do this at scale.
2: Oh, man, And yeah. at
1: the end of the day, they don't even have product market fit. <laughs> it's such a challenge right. for... A lot of companies are like, just I'd rather you actually go out there and build the monolith uh, and get product market fit. And then when you need to scale this product, uh, then you can start thinking about breaking it into microservices or doing different things. But, you know, it's funny how these fads kind of go through the industry and we throw away... Years and years of work that was very successful, for very long time. And then we kind of come full circle later on and realize, oh, maybe that wasn't so bad. And and the perfect example of that is the NoSQL movement, right? And how, you know, there for about five years, we were all like, SQL's the devil, don't do Oracle, don't do SQL Server, MySQL, Postgres. They're all legacy. No one needs that go to Mongo, go document stores, Cassandra, all this stuff. And now we've kind of come full circle We say like, well, you know, rebuilding all of that logic and an app tier doesn't always make sense. And sometimes a database just makes sense. So I suspect we'll get to the same place with microservices. We're just not there yet. We're still too early in the hype cycle.
2: It's happening though. It, it really is. I, especially when you, when you see things like um, the t- 2017 video from Uber where, he illustrated all the challenges that they're dealing with, with microservices cause they have thousands of them and you're, you're like, wow, that, you know, that sounds really hard. And, and at the end of the video he goes, yeah, we're actually thinking about, you know, consolidating some of these services and yeah, wouldn't it be nice if we started a new trend where, you know, we were reasonable up front. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> unfortunately that's, that's not a thing, but I, um, But it is nice now that DevOps has largely become somewhat boring. I don't have the arguments that I used to have about, like you said earlier, culture and all all of that stuff. It's more very tactically, you know, how do we do this?
1: Yeah, well, I, I like that. SRE's kind of finally filled the gap of what what is the role that I'm trying to build. You know, I, I think the quote that I, I always liked out there and I don't remember who said this, someone from Google, but you know, uh, SRE is how you implement class devops. Uh and, you know, to me that is the perfect analogy of all these cultural Very ideological concepts and SRE is a way to implement them. Now, again, I agree with you in the point that you said that not every company should implement them the way Google did or LinkedIn or others. Uh, I think every company has to kind of figure out what their customer base is and what their requirements are. But um, I am glad to see there is a little bit more prescriptive guidance around this concept of DevOps that didn't really exist. And then I've seen... Traditional DevOps teams have now become more what I used to call a release engineering team. They're focusing more on pipeline. They're focusing more on platform of the dev tools and really making sure that that is smooth and automated and and repeatable. Uh, And then kind of combining those two things together, you get a pretty good setup, I think, at the end of the day.
0: So so the, the word DevOps has been abused so much. Almost a point where I I, I really don't like to use it anymore because you never quite know what somebody understands by the term. Where do you think things went wrong for DevOps? Because it definitely went off the rails a little bit.
2: Well, I think it went off the rails a few times. Um, It went off the rails in 2006, I think, around then, or whenever the the first utterance of of smashing two words together happened. Um, At that time, it was kind of a members-only club. And it was off the rails. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was off the rails from day zero because it, it was very exclusionary. Like, if you're not a cloud-native company, then, you know, don't talk to me. You're not ready for DevOps, nor will you ever be. Then I think uh, in the early days of containers, it went off the rails. That's when uh, this was like the magical implementation of DevOps. So it was like the parody of the DevOps principle from an imple- implementation standpoint. And eventually people wanted containers to be everything so they started treating them like vms which was kind of contrary to the whole value of um of containers and i remember one of the most popular talks at the time was a large payroll provider company who was proud of just shoving everything into massive containers i'm like well that doesn't make too much sense um and then right now i you know i wouldn't say we're necessarily off the rails i think the problem that we see right now is that too many people are itching in their seats to come up with the next term to replace devops and i don't i'm not a big fan of that um i think that we're you know maybe in the the later adolescent years of of devops and we're finding our way and understanding ourselves a little bit and we have something to to build on top of. Um, but I, I think that this is where the new confusion comes in is because we have a lot of new terminology that is parallel to or at some level with inside of DevOps that starts to confuse the conversation in, in even, even more. Because if you immediately f- jump from the term DevOps to continuous learning or you know pick your term of, of the week, then you're even more confused. And, and I wish it was, you know, we, we're all techies. We want very tactical, like you do this, you do that. You have an answer. We all hunt for that. I wish it was that simple. It's not. Unfortunately, we all have to be very discerning when it comes to educating ourselves on these concepts and it forces us all to be curmudgeons, but that's also what makes us lovable.
0: Yeah, I think I, I think people people made, make mistakes with DevOps because they want the easy button. They want they want to bring someone yeah. in to implement DevOps for them. And um, sure, you can you can have tools to support it. But even even if you go back to the Phoenix Project book, it wasn't about look here's a solution. This is this is how you fix it. It was about the journey. And I think when people, people forget, they need to go on the journey. Yeah, they, they they come out with the wrong impressions at the end of uh, the whole thing, just like SRE. People will rebrand their their Narca's SRE team, or they'll have a, an SRE team that has no um, no engineers, no software engineers in it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, um, it's just that it's a big. They become buzzwords for for recruiters rather than meaningful processes. The desire for DevOps
2: in a box has not only led to a whole class of toolings. It's made a lot of false starts for people, and also the companies that try to implement DevOps and waterfall. They initiate a project, and they're like, "Okay, project starts today. In six months, we are going to be DevOps." <laughs> And that's how they, they approach it.
1: <laughs> that's that's how most of my cloud projects have gone. Like, we're going to be on the cloud in two years. And you're like, yeah, yeah, okay. If that is that the expensive way you want to go to the cloud? That's great. But uh, if you want to do it the right way, with the right, you know, platforming and, and really thinking it through, it's going to take more like three to four years. And to do it even sort, sort of close, and I'm going to tell you, we'll probably get three years into it and realize we did it all wrong and want to change it again. So... <laughs> It's just one of those uh, unfortunate things with the cloud and and these technologies is that they, they take a long time to turn these ships <laughs> and and move them in a different direction sometimes,
2: yeah, and I think that that's why it's important for for high performing engineering teams to celebrate their their small wins. i mean i I interact with a small uh, engineering team on a regular basis who you know setting up their new um, authentication, Oh, I don't even know what you call it, but you know, secrets management and all that stuff was a huge win. And and being able to celebrate that is a big deal because it matters a lot. That success will matter a lot for the long term viability of their delivery chain.
1: And and I think that's important. We do something similar. We we you know, we buy cakes and we have a party and, you know, congratulate the teams for delivering every quarter or every sprint or whatever it's gonna be that we have kind of that cadence. But yeah, I agree with you. I think you know, even the smallest thing that's plumbing in the back end something should be celebrated and really, you know, encouraged by your team because if you don't celebrate those little wins, you'll never get to the big wins to celebrate those. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, So one of the big challenges that I think we're seeing in the industry is this breakdown between DevOps concepts and ITSM, and particularly change management um, and incident management, problem management, these things that are not really designed for agile. How do you see uh, that starting to get rationalized out there in the the business? You already kind
2: of touched on it as we... A lot of times we're adapting systems that were put in place before some of these you know, more modern practices, SRE and so forth, and on-call. I think if you've ever been on-call, you know how bad it is um, and how frustrating that can be. And I've yet to really find somebody who's in love with their ticketing uh, system. So there definitely kind of had to be an evolution there. And now we break into – I think you have ITSM, you have incident management, and you have incident response as two kind of separate things. And the best way to look at this, um, and it seems super nuanced, but it really isn't when you think about it, is that when something breaks, the amount of things that have to come together in a very short amount of time is tremendous. Um, you have to have people. You have to, have to notify those people. You have to, have to surface alerts. You have to surface relevant information related to the alerts. Um, and you, if it's a catastrophic error, you need to bring in other people who are related to the to the um, incident. And ITSM systems weren't really designed for this. I, I see your ITSM as being your um, your medical record or the car fax on your car. It's a system of record. Um, and what incident response is all about is 100% about mobilization. And at that critical window, kind of the fight or flight window, <laughs> where all of your senses come together, you have to be able to get to the right person at the right time as quickly as possible in the best way possible. You need to surface what they need to do their job as quickly as possible before you get your car into the shop to have the final resolution or the whole picture brought, brought together. And so, you know, we would love all of our existing approaches kind of blanket over everything. The interaction between incident response and ITSM has to be very tight. And in environments where it is, it's kind of cool because developers don't have to interact with the ITSM directly at all, but still contribute to it um, via integration, via a good incident response tool. Uh, And there is that bidirectional correlation, which is important. But you're definitely going to look at your ITSM as your your system of record for everything, your entire history of everything that's happened um, across the events, across the organization, and your incident response, really the, you know, how do we deal with what we need to deal with right now?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. What about the uh, the change management part of it? How do you see that playing into the space? This is still a
2: very difficult problem. And,
1: and it either goes on. Un- unknown for a long
2: time until it actually is an issue. Um, or it's just a manual ad hoc kind of thing that you address. Um, even in the world of incident response, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, if, if somebody is not Actively, And it's usually the SRE role, actively curating policies, escalation policies, on-call schedules on a regular basis, your integrations, how your integrations roll up to alerts and incidents, then even that poses um, challenges down the road. (laughs) You can even have technical debt there, um, which is unfortunate, but it's just the reality. Um, I think that what... A good feedback loop from incident back into plan or incident back into building your delivery chain will do. So high quality postmortems with great audit trails, great context should help you spot um, inconsistencies across your environment and delivery chain relatively quickly. But it is not a silver bullet. I don't think it uh, um, you know, directly addresses that issue. Uh, and I think that that's an area where organizations are still struggling. Um, but I also don't think you can turn to your classic CMDB to, to solve that problem for you either. Um, there is some really interesting ways to use monitoring to measure the difference across environments. And I think that that's one way to do it, actually. Um, but there is no magic bullet, unfortunately.
0: There's some great tools for for monitoring drift. Uh, I wish there was equally as good tools for monitoring drift of processes, because people say they'll they'll do things one way, and then you realize six months later that they actually don't do it the way it was documented. And
2: yeah, it's so some of the really cool tooling that I've I've seen come out is all based on a repo of some sort that you consider to be your truth set. But what if it's not your truth set? <laughs> you know, it's a it's somebody who has to manually determine that that actually is the truth set, and then you have a whole other problem.
0: Yeah, the number of times I've heard somebody say they're going to build a, a new tool to to uh, aggregate all the other data because all the other data sources are, uh, are, are wrong. And the first question is, well, what data are you going to put into it? <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> well, it's really been great to have you here on the show, Chris. Uh, I know you have a podcast. where you want to share? Do you want to share that uh, information? How to find you on the internet?
2: So I'd love to connect with anybody who's uh, listened to the podcast and uh, build on these conversations. I have my own podcast called Developers Eating the World, focused on practitioners um, getting in the weeds of how they build their environment, very stack specific. Um, find me on Twitter at hoarding info, and, of course, uh, LinkedIn as well. And, yeah, please, I'd encourage anybody to uh, reach out um, or use me as, as a way to connect you the dots with other people in the industry because that's one thing that we're fortunate in having as advocates is, is a lot of connections to other people in the space.
1: We look forward to uh, having you on the show again in the future or maybe join us for the main show and talk about cloud news and all the fun things there.
2: I'd love to. I I think that that's such a cool cool concept. So, yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chris.
0: Visit thecloudpod.net to subscribe to the show, join our Slack channel, or sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can also find information on reaching our audience through a CloudPod sponsorship opportunity. A big thank you to today's guest, and thank you for listening.